That brings us now to chapter 54. And chapter 54 is a very logical chapter to follow here because we have the song that accompanies salvation and the future glories of Israel here. Because, you see, the Redeemer is coming to Zion. And someday they are going to behold him and ask him, What mean those nail prints in your hands? He said, I receive those in the house of my friend. And there is to be great joy. So this next chapter opens with a song. Sing, O barren. Verse 1, and he's talking here directly to Israel, and he's talking to you and to me. Now, I can't sing. Maybe you can, and if you can, that's wonderful. But I'm going to be able to sing someday, and today I'm very happy that he says to make melody in your heart. I'm really in tune in my heart, but I've somehow or another never been able to get the mouth in tune. But This is a marvelous passage. Now, you see, redemption brings a song into the world. All that the world can produce is the blues and rock music. Not pretty, (laughs) not really joyful. It's always a plaintiff note. And I want to tell you, it's only redemption that can give you a song. And here we have it. The world sings the blues. The redeemed sing of blessings. The world has its rock and roll. The redeemed sing of redemption. The world plays jazz. The redeemed have the reality of joy. And so there follows the sacrificial sufferings of the servant in chapter 53. Now chapter 54, that opens with a great hallelujah chorus. And someday... We're going to all join in this. It's in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sung a new song. Well, it's going to be a new song because you and I both are going to be able to sing it. And it's going to be new for me. Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign on the earth. What a picture you have here. You see, this is the church that's mentioned in Revelation. But here in the 54th of Isaiah, why, it is the nation Israel. The church is a chaste virgin. Here you have a restored wife. And I read now the rest of verse 1, because we have now in the first ten verses the regathering and restoration of Israel as the desolate wife of Jehovah. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Now you have here this wonderful song. And I think you see it in miniature in the life of Sarah. Here is Sarah, barren, childless, and an old woman, 80 years old, no children. And now God makes the barren to 
bring forth. And just think of the millions that have come from her. May I say to you, that's the reason God's given us that story, is to let us know here. So the first word after the crucifixion in Isaiah 53 is sing. And it's a call to Israel to sing. But they're not singing over there today. In the past, Israel has been a barren wife, but out yonder in the future. Her travailing is over, because her travailing so far has only produced wind. It's like the mountain that travailed and brought forth a mouse. But her future is more glorious, as there are going to be many children in the future. The Word of God makes it clear that the great days are right down yonder ahead of us. It gets gooder and gooder all the way along if you're a child of God. Today's better than yesterday. And you want to know something? Tomorrow's going to be better than today. Can't have it any more wonderful than this, friends. Verse 2, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. Now, the nation Israel has never occupied the entire land that God has given to them. The land that God marked out for them, and you'll find it in Joshua 1, 4, it was about 300,000 square miles. Even in their heyday, when they reached the zenith under David and Solomon, they only occupied 30,000 square miles. Quite a difference. Now God says, you're going to lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. You're going to be safe in that land. You won't need to be afraid of the Arab in that day. And during the millennium, they're going to occupy the total borders. And the city of Jerusalem was going to have large suburban areas and no traffic jams. Now, how the Lord will work that out, don't ask me. I don't know, but he's going to work it out. Verse 3, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Now, the Gentiles have occupied most of the land of promise. They have it today. And they're going to withdraw to their own borders. The whole problem in the world today is that not only are individuals trying to step over in somebody's territory, but nations are trying to expand their borders too. That's caused the problem in this world today. You remember James, in a practical way, said, we just keep on wanting more and more and more. And that's what produces wars. Now he goes on here, verse 5, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Now, God will own them as his redeemed in that day. Now we are told in verse 6, For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, and thou wast refused, saith the Lord. Now, Israel is today like a wife that has been divorced for adultery. That's the figure of speech that's used. And when you have a figure of speech like that, a type, don't try to push them too far, because they merely illustrate in one particular area. Now he says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, 
but with great mercies will I gather thee. Now, that's verse 7 here, chapter 54. And in that day, we're going to look back, all of us, not only Israel, and we're going to look at what we thought was terrible down here. But it was a light affliction, and it was just for a moment. And it's going to work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And we need to get our eyes on things that are not seen. We're looking at too many things that are seen today. Now, verse 10, "...for the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee." Now, if you feel that God's going to break his covenant he made with Abraham, an eternal covenant, Isaiah would have you know that you're wrong. God says he's not going to break that covenant, never will break it. He doesn't intend to break it. Now, we have in this last section here the rejoicing and righteousness of Israel as the restored wife. And that began here with verse 11. "'O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires.'" Verse 15, "'Behold, they shall surely gather together.'" And verse 17, and this is a marvelous verse of Scripture. Notice this, "'No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord.'" Too bad Hitler didn't read that. Too bad that Haman didn't take note of that. Too bad today that Russia didn't take note of that, or doesn't take note. And there are a lot of anti-Semites in this country ought to read that verse. God intends to do the thing he says right here. Next time now, we'll begin at chapter 55 of Isaiah. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, if you have turned to the 55th chapter of Isaiah, we'll begin there. Now, you will recall that there is a sequence of events here in Isaiah, as in all the books of the Bible, including Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which we have seen tells a story. And it is not quite fair to the Word of God or to the writer of any book of the Bible to lift out a chapter. It's not fair to lift out a verse of Scripture and pay no attention to its context as to the meaning of it. Now, in the 53rd chapter, we saw the gospel. We saw a Savior that was dying for the sins of mankind. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the picture that's presented there. Now, in chapter 55, we have God's very gracious and global invitation of salvation. And the last chapter, 54, confined it to the nation Israel. 
they were given the first opportunity. And I think that's what Paul meant when he said that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. It doesn't mean he has top priority today, and he shouldn't have bottom priority either, but he's on the same par as everyone else today. But he did receive it first. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached to an all-Jewish congregation. There wasn't a Gentile in the lot at all. Now this invitation goes out to the world, and that makes it remarkable, because there have been very few religions or religious leaders that have had a global view. They have not had a world view at all. But notice here that we see the work of the suffering servant in chapter 53 makes possible now the offer of salvation to a lost world in this chapter. And here the invitation is extended to the entire world. And Paul could say, as we've already quoted this in Romans 1:16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we find that it's a worldwide global gospel, and we find here that there is one condition on which men are to receive it. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. This is not, and it reveals, it's not a mechanical offer that's locked up in the airtight compartment of God's election, but it rests upon the free-flowing will of each hearer. He's urged, yea, he's commanded to seek the Lord. Now, will you notice what we have here in verse 1? Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, the chapter here opens with a very heart-rendering cry, if you please. And it's the heart cry of God to everyone to pause and consider his salvation. He says, Ho! It's like a startled cry for help in the night. He wants every weak soul to behold his mighty bared arm of salvation. Now, the invitation is ecumenical. I do not believe in the ecumenical movement that they talk about today, but I do believe in God's ecumenical movement, and that is that the invitation of the gospel is to go out to the world. And it's limited, we find, no, to one class, and we're going to see here who it is. Ho to everyone that thirsted. Now listen. It's to everyone, and everyone, friends, means everyone. It means every man, woman, and child on top side of the earth. It means every man of every station in life, every strata of society, every race and tribe and tongue and condition and color. 
all here are included. This is an invitation to everyone, whole everyone. But wait just a minute. It now is limited to just certain ones, to everyone that thirsted. For those who thirst and have been drinking at man-made cisterns of this world, those today that have been drinking at the bars of this earth, this invitation is to those who long to drink deep and long of the eternal springs. Now, I'd like to give a quotation right here from Dr. Jennings, and will you listen to this? And this is the way he begins, and I'm quoting now. Let us listen, then, as if we had never heard the melody of this tender and gracious invitation before. Who are the guests here invited? All who thirst. All that is needed to be welcomed, then, is not to need, for that is true of all, but to want what is offered. Am I utterly dissatisfied with myself? Then I thirst. Am I dissatisfied with all the world can offer me, and of which I've tasted? Then I thirst. Is my spirit altogether dissatisfied with all the formalism of religion? Then do I thirst, blessed thirst. It is the only prerequisite to enjoyment. Now, here is the invitation. Ho, everyone that thirsty. You say, I'm not interested. I'm not thirsty. I'm satisfied with the things of this life. Then it's not for you, friend. I hate to say it. It's just not for you. You have to be thirsty. And this is the way that the world does it today. A certain bottling company that makes a very popular soft drink. If you've seen these signs, and they put them out here in California on the desert. You'd be riding along on the freeway. All of a sudden, you see a sign with a bottle pushed down in some ice, cracked ice. And my, it looks good. And they have just one word there. That's all. Thirsty, question mark, thirsty. You're riding along across the desert. They want you to stop at the next filling station and buy a Coke because that's what they're selling. And they hope you're thirsty. But you arrive there and you've got a thermos filled with iced tea or some drink and orange juice. And you say, I'm not thirsty. We'll drive on. That's not for you. But if you're thirsty, then pull off at the next crossroads and get your drink, you see. Now, at the crossroads of life, God has put up the sign, Thirsty? Ho! Everyone that thirsty. Are you thirsty? Are you tired of this world? Have you found out it doesn't satisfy you? Do you long for something better? Well, he says, I have something for you. Ho, everyone that thirsted. And then he mentions here the kind of drinks he offers. Quite a variety, by the way. He says, and he that hath no money. And say, by the way, it used to be a nickel for a bottle of drink, and then it went up to a dime, and then 15 cents. And now, out on the desert, or in some places where they're scarce, you'll have to pay 25 cents. My, they've really gone up. And by the time you hear this, it may be up even more than that. But here, 
This drink is without money. Why? Because back in the 53rd chapter, he paid a price. He's already paid the price for you. Now he says, come ye buy and eat. Not only drink, but the bread of life too. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, I want you to notice here that there are three kinds of drink. Come ye to the waters, and not only waters, but buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, I'd like for you to look at these three types of drink for just a moment. Now, waters, that's plural used here. And in the Hebrew, that was the way you attain the superlative degree. You didn't say good, gooder, goodest. And you better not say that, though. Good, better, best. Now, the way you said best, you'd have to make it goodies. You'd have to make it plural. Now, here, waters speaks of an abundance. And it speaks also not only of the quantity, but it speaks of the quality of the water. This is water for the soul. And this is the kind of water that the Lord Jesus said, and he used the same kind of an expression when he stood there that day in the temple area. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Now we know where the fountain is. That fountain is Christ. That's the water of life. That's salvation. Now the second drink is wine. And we're not going to get into that argument today, I can assure you. And it speaks of the drink of the soul, which is joy. And that's the meaning of it in Scripture. For instance, you'll recall in Proverbs 31, 6, "...give strong drink unto him that's ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts." And then in First Thessalonians 1, 6, we're told, "...and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy." of the Holy Spirit. Now, joy is that that you can only have when Christ is not only your Savior, but when he becomes the master you lie. When you come to know him, you can have joy. And John said he'd written the first epistle that our joy might be full. I saw this in a preacher's study up in Salem, Oregon, and I copied it down. It's a very brief Thing. It was a motto that he had in his study. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. And that's a marvelous drink, by the way, to have joy in your heart and just not something put on. Now, milk, that's the third type of drink. Now, milk is essential for growth and development, especially for babes. And that's what the dairies have been trying to tell people today, that everybody needs milk. Well, I'm not entering into that argument either. But the milk of the Word, the Word of God today, is essential for spiritual growth. And one of the things we do on this broadcast, we attempt to furnish milk. We're sort of the milkman, and we give out the milk of the Word. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter 2, 2, "...as newborn babes..." desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Have you ever seen a little baby when its mama's fixing the bottle? The little old fellow there that's lying down hungry, he's wiggling his feet, he's wiggling his hands, he's wiggling all over. 
and with his mouth he's making all kinds of commotion and a great deal of noise, too. Why? Because he desires the milk. And a child of God ought to want the milk of the Word. My friend, there's something wrong with you if you don't like the study of the Word of God. And that, oh, I'm going to say something that's not nice today, but may I say it? The problem today in our churches, we are entertaining people. We're giving them nice, sweet little courses and this, that, and the other thing, and little talks on this, and banquets and committees and everything else, except the Word of God. And why? Because the babies, they're still born, if they're born at all. They have no spiritual life. My friend, we ought to want the sincere milk of the Word. Say, this is a great passage of Scripture. I'm just through the first verse. Now, verse 2. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now, a great many even Christians today spend their money even in so-called Christian enterprises. But it doesn't feed anybody. It's not bread. I rather like the expression today that some of these hippie groups call money bread. Well, the Word of God is bread too, my friend. And there are a lot of Christians put money in that which is not bread, but they think it is. Be well for you to investigate where you're putting your money. Maybe you're just buying up a bunch of sawdust. It won't satisfy your heart and your life. You won't find it in the pleasures of this world either, and you won't find it even in money today. Jay Gould, he had plenty of money, but when he was dying, he said, I suppose I'm the most miserable devil on earth. And Lord Byron, who had, I think, everything this life could offer, fame, genius, money, and all kinds of pleasures, and he wrote, The Worm, The Canker, and the grief are mine alone. <laughs> what a picture, may I say to you. Why don't you get to the table where you can get some good bread and milk and wine and water? I tell you, that's where we all need to be today. Now, verse 3, "...incline your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David." Now, God was merciful to David. And he will be merciful to you and me today. I had a fellow, I'd heard him speak down in Pershing Square years ago, deriding and ridiculing the Bible. I saw him in church one Sunday evening when I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles. After the service, he came up to me, and they always feign this humble approach. You know, he says, Preacher, I have a question to ask you. Why did God choose a man like David? And when he said that, he leered. You knew exactly what the old rascal was thinking. I said, I'll tell you why God chose a man like David. So that you and I would be able to come to him. Because if God will take David, he might take you and he might take me. And I said, that's the reason. The sure mercies of David. How wonderful they are. Now, he says in verse 4, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. And the Lord Jesus is called the true witness for us today. 
In verse 5, "...behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not." And at that time, you know, Isaiah, he didn't know about the United States at all. There's some that think that he did, but actually he didn't. Now, in verse 6, we come to the second division here, and we have an initiation into the ways of God. "...seek ye the Lord, while he may be found. Call ye upon him." While he's near. Now, the way of God and the way of man are put in contrast and conflict. And the objection is often made that this is not a legitimate gospel call for today, as man is not asked to seek God, but on the contrary, God's seeking man. Well, I will buy that. It's accurate. But the call today, and from the human aspect, Human responsibility is not defeated by the sovereign purposes and election of God. And therefore, the Lord Jesus could say, All the Father giveth me, they'll come to me. And he that cometh to me, I'll in no wise cast out. They'll come. You can sit on the sidelines and argue all you want to that you're not elect. But my friend, the minute that you come, you're elect. And that's up to you. And he says now, let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he'll have mercy upon him to our God, for he'll abundantly pardon. The problem today with man is not mental. You hear people say, oh, I have great questions and hurdles to get over. No, you don't. Well, you'd have one. That's sin in your life that you don't want to give up. That's the one thing that keeps men from God. Let the wicked forsake his way. And when you do, friend, you're just ready to turn to him. That's when you get really thirsty. Now God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your way. He says, the heavens are high above the earth. And the gospel is not a man-made thing. It's come down from heaven. It's God's gospel. Now, in the third thing here, beginning with verse 10, we have here the third last division, and this is the institution of the Word of God. Now, when the gospel is given out, the emphasis is put upon the accuracy of the Word of God and upon the reliability of it and the importance of it. Listen to this. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, in this closing section, there is a prominence given to the word of God. That's the only place that the gospel is found is in the Word of God. Salvation is a revelation of God. And the Word of God now is likened unto rain, comes down from heaven. You see, friends, the gospel is not God asking you to do something. And the gospel is not something that man thinks up. Man does not work his way up to God by some tower of Babel effort. But he receives God's revelation, which comes down from heaven like rain. And just as the rain comes down. And when I made this tape, we have had a delightful rain here in Southern California. 
and we hadn't had rain in a long time. How wonderful it was. The rain will cause the earth to become fruitful. And the Word of God is called also the seed, you see. And when the rain and the seed get together in the earth, down here in the human heart, then something's going to happen. And he says here, "...for ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands." You see, the rain causes the earth to respond with a green blanket of praise to God. And someday the earth will respond with a note of praise to the Creator and the Redeemer. Because we're told creation's groaning and travailing in pain until now. And then he says, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, this looks forward to the millennium when the earth will be redeemed and the curse of sin removed. Because you see, when Christ died, he not only redeemed us as sinners but a sin-cursed earth. Now, you have found, I'm sure, the 56th chapter of Isaiah, and we're following along here a pattern that all goes back to that marvelous 53rd chapter, the salvation of the Lord provided for lost mankind by the sacrifice of his Son upon the cross. Now, he returns here, to the nation Israel. And Isaiah the prophet is speaking now to his own people. And in light of that, and in the first eight verses, he gives you some grand particulars of the future kingdom. And then from verses 9 through 12, you see the sorry predicament of the present kingdom. That is, as it was in Isaiah's day, even with Hezekiah on the throne. And he led in revival. Yet the contrast is quite evident here. Now, what we have here is not a retreat to Mount Sinai, as some seem to think, but rather a victory march through the arch of triumph into the millennium. It's a forward movement, which is the logical outworking of what has preceded. It pertains particularly to Israel, radiates out into a widening circle of global benefits. And this all rests upon the new covenant that God has made with Israel, and it will be the blessing for the earth in the future. And at that time, the law which the Lord Jesus lifted to the nth degree in the Sermon on the Mount, will be enforced on the earth because he'll be reigning. And that will be his will, and it will be his law. And the emphasis, therefore, in this chapter is on ethics and not events. It's upon practice and not prophecy. This is something that, frankly, ought to influence us today because a great many people think the study of prophecy is more or less to entertain us and to satisfy the curious or to intrigue the intellect, but actually it is to encourage holy living. And you remember the writer in the New Testament says that he that hath this hope 
purifieth himself. So that this is a purifying hope, by the way. Now he's looking on into the kingdom when the Lord Jesus is reigning. And you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he lifted the law to the nth degree there, which makes it absolutely today impossible for anybody to be saved by the law. For instance, he said, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And there are very few of us today that are not murderers on that kind of basis. How are you going to be saved? Well, we have a Savior today that saves us. But when he's raining down here, believe me, there'll be no one hijacking a plane, and you'll be able to walk down Glory Boulevard and Hallelujah Avenue in Jerusalem. And the earth is going to be safe in that day. Every man will dwell in peace under his own vine and fig tree. And that means he's going to be a capitalist. Everybody's going to own his property. And thank the Lord, he'll not have to pay taxes in that day to keep up some crippled school system today where they burn it down periodically and destroy the property. And today, people are being taxed out of their minds as well as their pocketbooks today. And friends, it's something that can't continue. At one time, it precipitated a tea party in this country, and it led to a revolution. And the thing can't continue today. And it's time that politicians are recognizing that. Now, the beauty about the millennium, and there are many beauties, but one of them will be the every man will own his own property and he'll not be taxed. That's going to be great, isn't it? That would be the millennium, by the way. Now, will you listen to him in verse 1? Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice. For my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Now, the prophets recognized that there would be an interval before the establishment of the kingdom. But they also speak of it in the immediate future. And the salvation spoken of here is the national salvation of Israel. And this was what was in the mind of the apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans 11:26, "So all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob." That is anticipation of the coming salvation. And because it was coming, that should be an incentive. You see, just as we've said that if we have the hope of his coming, it's an incentive to live a holy life today. Now, he says, Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. So, you see, this is for a people that are back under the Sabbath, and it will be restored after this day of grace in the millennium here upon the earth. And... This will be the time of the millennium. Now, today we're living in a day when we're definitely told, let no man judge you in reference to a Sabbath day. But today we're therefore not under it, which I think ought to be evident to anyone. But that doesn't mean that God does not intend to restore it to the earth when he reigns upon the earth. For the law will go forth from Jerusalem. Verse 3. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, 
The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. In other words, the Gentile in that day is not to feel he's an outsider because of God's peculiar arrangement with Israel. On the contrary, he's invited to step up and share the blessings. And a eunuch could not serve as a priest under the Mosaic economy. In other words, a physical handicap in that day will shut no one out. Now in verse 4, For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, the handicapped, the strangers, and all outcasts are invited to accept God's gracious overture of a position that's better than a son or daughter and a security that's everlasting. Now, the law, of course, could not afford, nor did it give that. This, you see, is lifted now to the nth degree. This is the millennium we're talking about. Verse 6, "...also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant." You see, the stranger will be given a new heart that he might love the Lord in that day. And then verse 7, "...even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer." Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now, this is a verse from which the Lord quoted when he cleansed the temple the second time. It was God's original intention that the temple was to be for all peoples, irrespective of their race, tongue, class, or condition. And it had long ceased to function as such in Christ's day. Now, the church today is far removed from its primary objective, just as the temple is. The church today has become sort of a suburban country club. And you find that the church has been running from people, either that or chasing them, and not with the thought of winning them to Christ today. But they left the downtown area, went out to the suburban area, and they've become there a place that they have generally a good kitchen and serve a good meal. They have a good volleyball team, and they have a good basketball team. But they don't have very many personal workers that are out winning the loss to the Lord. Now, will you notice verse 8, "...the Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him." Now, the kingdom is to be worldwide in its extent, and it will include members of every family of the human race. And God says in that day they're going to go out after them. I think the greatest time of what we'd call revival, that is turning to Christ, will take place in the millennium. Now, here in verse 9, we begin this second and last section. Now, the first part, what a marvelous view of the future kingdom. But what about the predicament of the present kingdom as it was? And you can look around you today. Now, here is what Isaiah says, verse 9. 
All the beasts of the field come to devour, yea, all the beasts in the forest. Now our vision is shifted from the lofty contemplation of the glorious future kingdom to the sorry condition of the then existing kingdom. God was permitting the nations of the world to come in like wild and ferocious beasts, and they were robbing and pillaging his people. Assyria had already broken in. Babylon was soon to break in, and others would come to plunder and destroy. Many of you have seen my pictures on Jerusalem, and you can't look at those pictures without noticing the stones and the walls of Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall, there at the pinnacle of the temple. And it's quite evident that that city has been destroyed at least 27 times. And it's built today upon a debris that if you got down to the time of Christ, you'd probably go down 30 to 50 feet below the present surface. God permitted that to happen. Why? Because they had failed him so. Now, verse 10 is a remarkable verse. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Now, this is a picture, actually, of the prophets and the priests and those who spoke for God in that day. They were watchmen. They were blind. And they were ignorant. And they were dumb dogs. You remember Paul said, beware of dogs. And that's not, you know, to give to the male man to tell him to beware of dog where he delivers mail. Or to beware of a dog when you visit a stranger sometime and one comes out barking at you. What he's talking about here, that every shepherd had a dog to help him watch the sheep. And the dog would be the one to lie down, but keep an eye open. And the minute that uh, animal came near or a human being to harm the sheep or to steal him, the dog would begin to bark. But now the watchman, the prophet, who should be warning God's people, who should be giving out the Word of God, well, they were ignorant of it. And they were just dumb dogs. They found it's easier to keep quiet and not say anything. Liberalism, to my judgment, came in because of the cowardly position that ministers took. When you preach the Word of God, you step on toes. I know that. I've been doing it for years. And I don't apologize for it. I try to be as nice and sweet as I can. But my friend, the Word of God is strong. And right here, it's very strong. He talks about that a man that stands in the pulpit that won't give out the Word of God's a dumb dog, my friend. And I didn't say that. Don't accuse me of that. Isaiah said that. You take it up with Isaiah and the Holy Spirit and see what they have to say. But I don't think they'll change it. Dumb dogs, he says. And by the way, I think this is where the DD degree originated. Dumb dog degree. A man that won't give out the Word of God, sleeping, lying down, can't bark, loving to slumber. Well, it's much more comfortable. You'd be pastor of a people. The idea is to please them all. We here today, I have had several letters from folk that say, would you recommend to us a pastor? And then they give the qualification. And do you know what is top priority today? We want one with a good personality that knows how to communicate to all age groups. 
that the senior citizens will love him and the young people will love him. And actually, some of these didn't even emphasize the question whether he could teach the Word of God or not. And as a result, we got a lot of dumb dogs around today. I'm sorry to have to say it, but Isaiah said it before I ever thought of it. In fact, I never even thought of it. Now, verse 11, Yea, they're greedy dogs. A lot of them are greedy, by the way, which can never have enough. And they're shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own, every one for his gain, for his quarter. In other words, what does this mean to me personally? And the important thing is not to give out the Word of God. A preacher friend of mine who's retired, he and I the other day had lunch, and he said to me, McGee, you're making it very strong on radio. Suppose that people turn against you and won't support your program. I said, I'll go off there and just tell the Lord about it. He intends two things. If he intends for me to stay on the air, he intends for me to give out his word. And that's his problem. And I'll be very frank with you. I think that's his problem, not mine, because he wants me to give out the word. Now, if he doesn't raise up friends, I won't have any. But I'm going to give out the word, friends. Now, notice, he says, verse 12, "'Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant.'" Well, these people drown their sad plight and their condition in drink, and they face the future as drunkards and blind optimists. And there are a great many people today that are facing life like that. They are drowning their troubles in drink today. And this nation of ours, my friends, we talk about the drug problem of the youth. What about the drunken problem, the alcohol problem of the adult today? I'm on planes. I'm in motels. I'm in public places. I have never in my day seen as many people that drink. I was on a plane the other day, and there was a dear little grandmother on there. She was the sweetest-looking little thing. I just wish she'd been my grandmother. And this dear little lady, I thought, man, she won't have a cocktail. <laughs> Do you know that that girl, I heard her order. She ordered a Bloody Mary. Oh, boy, did she put them down. That old girl was accustomed to that sort of thing. And I thought, my, the morality of this nation, my friend, has gone out. And a great many Christians just like to hear some sweet, soft music. And today, there are a great many so-called Christian radio stations. They major in music. Why? Because you don't get in trouble if you play music. But you give out the Word of God, you do, my friend. Because Isaiah is saying some very strong things here. And I wish he'd cool it, by the way, because he may get me in trouble. Now, we move on, friends, here to the 57th chapter. We are coming now to the approaching end of the age. And when you come to the end of the age, it means comfort for the righteous and condemnation for the wicked. Now, today, I must grant you that the wicked are having it easy, and they are the ones in comfort. They are the ones with the money. They are the ones that seem to be on top. But when you get to the end of the age, it means comfort for the righteous and condemnation for the wicked. Now, this is God's order. Now, we have here 
this chapter here will mark the end of this second section of the final division of Isaiah. This section brings us to a conclusion, and this section we've labeled the salvation of Jehovah, which comes through the suffering servant. Now, this will end it. And those who will come, though, in humility and accept it are made righteous. Those who reject it, they proceed on their wicked way to judgment. Now, this chapter brings us to the crossroads where the way that leads to life goes one way and the broad way to destruction goes another way. The destination and division are right here. Now, the next section will be labeled the glory of Jehovah, which comes through the suffering servant. Now, that section introduces us to the kingdom. This chapter brings us to the final scene before the coming of the kingdom. Now, we have here in the first 14 verses the contrast between righteous and wicked. Listen to this. The righteous perish it, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Now, a great many people think today, my, why does God take some of his wonderful saints away today through the doorway of death? Well, my friend, he's removing them from a lot of trouble that's coming ahead. And in fact, when I started in the ministry, I worried about myself. Then when I had a child, I worried about her. Now I've got a grandson. I'm worried about his future. I don't worry about mine or even my daughter's, but I do worry about that little fella because he's going to have it rough out yonder in the future. Now, God is removing some of his choicest saints from the scene even today, and he'll continue it right down to the end. Verse 2, "...he shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness." But now notice, "...but draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore." Now God addresses the wicked. Even their ancestor is bad. Note the label that he gives their mothers, and it's not nice. Verse 4, "...against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood?" Now, they've been persecutors of the righteous. And up to this point, God has not intervened. You look around you today. You see the attack made upon the righteous. They're not having it easy, friends. The attack is coming hard and fierce today. But the wicked, they seem to get by with it. Now, he says here, verse 5, "...inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree." slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Now, they were idolaters. They turned their backs on God, and they're guilty of gross immorality and murder. Those are the two sins today, adultery and murder, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That is the condition of the wicked at the present time. And this, my friends, speaks of a day that's yet future. Now, we're told here in verse 6, "...among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured out a drink offering, and they will worship even the smooth stones in the brook that once slew a giant. 
They worship everything except the living and the true God. And then in verse 7, "...upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed, even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice." Now, idolatry associated with the graves on the mountaintops give place to scenes of the vilest immorality. It's a picture of the last day. Now, in verse 8, "...behind the doors also in the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up, thou hast enlarged thy bed." made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. Now, sin in the past has been committed in secret. But today, in our day, it's become very brazen and it flaunts itself. Somebody said to me some time ago, said, don't you think there's as much immorality in the past as there is today? And I agree that there was just as much in the past. In the past, it was kept secret. Men were ashamed of their sin, but today they're not. I listened to a pretty little girl on the TV, and she's living with a man not married to him, and she was commended by the others there. She's not a hypocrite. She may not be a hypocrite, but she's a sinner in God's sight. But it's done in the open today. That would never have been even whispered a few years ago. You see, sin today becomes a way of life, and no longer is there a high standard. There is, you see, a contrast made between the righteous and the wicked. And today, the wheat and tares are growing together, just as the Lord said they would grow together. Now, that brings us down into this section, and he keeps on making the contrast between the two, by the way. But I'm going to drop down now to the second division where you have comfort for the righteous here in verses 15 and 19, and then we'll see condemnation of the wicked in verses 20 and 21. Now listen at verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, God in the last days comforts his own because of who he is. He is the high and the lofty one. He's the God of eternity. And how feeble man is with his three score and ten years down here. He doesn't last very long. God's the God of eternity. And the eternal God promises to take those who do not trust in themselves, but trust in him. And he covers them as a mother hen covers a brood. And what peace and security that there is in that and in these days for those that are God's own. But this, of course, even looks beyond our day to the time of the great tribulation period, for you're coming here to the end of the age. Now he says, "...for I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth. For the Spirit shall fail before me, and the souls which I have made." This is 
verse 16 now in Isaiah 57. I'm saying that because I received several more letters from people who tell me, keep mentioning the chapter and verse. Now, I don't like to do that. It takes up time. But I must do it because there are those that tune in late, and then there are those that may not be following along exactly with us, and maybe we are moving a little too fast. All right. Now will you listen? For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid him and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. Now God explains why he punishes the wicked. The wicked are covetous, and they go on in rebellion against God. Now God has to stop that. Friends, I'm sure that any intelligent person, he knows that a holy God must stop this thing. And for a man with a rebellious heart or a proud man, God will have to punish him. That'll be the only way. Now, in verse 18, God says, I've seen his ways. I'll heal him. I'll lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. Now, for those who will forsake the wickedness of their ways, he'll heal them and save them, you see. He's the gracious God. Verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that's near, saith the Lord, I'll heal him. Now, God alone can speak peace to the heart of the sinner, and he's the only one that can. Now, listen to what he says to the wicked. And these three last sections in this last major division of Isaiah all end with the same statement. Here it is, verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked are like the troubled sea. It cannot rest. Its waters cast up mire and dirt. This is probably the most picturesque description of the wicked you will find in Scripture. He's like the troubled and restless sea. He can find no rest or peace in his wicked ways. He continues on like a hunted criminal looking for deliverance and safety. An 80-year-old man several years ago walked into the jail in Jackson, Mississippi and said, For 50 years I have been carrying on my conscience a murder. Another man has already paid the penalty for it, but I'm the one that's guilty and I have to make the confession of it. And they found out, according to law, another man's paid the penalty. They could not arrest him. That is, they couldn't hold him. They couldn't execute him. Another man had already paid the penalty for that crime. But this man was carrying an awful conscience, and that probably was the worst punishment that he could have had. Fifty years of misery, no peace in his heart at all. And God says, "...there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked." And let me put it like this. Friends, if the world can have peace today without God, then you'll contradict the Word of God. I have news for you. You'll not contradict the Word of God. The wicked cannot have peace in this world, and they don't have it today. And if you were able to get peace everywhere else in the world today... You wouldn't have it in Pasadena where I live because 
I happen to know there's a little undercurrent going on in this community. And then if you could get peace in the city, you might have trouble even in my neighborhood. My friend, you just can't bring peace today. You can't bring peace. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. Now, that's an axiom of God. That's like the law of gravitation. It works, and this works.